From global design practice Hassle, this is Hassle Talks, a podcast series passionate about the transformative power of design to make the world a better place. I'm Carla Fox Reynolds, sustainable design leader in Hassle's Perth studio, and I'm your host for this episode. It's an exciting one. We talk about how Perth could transition to a net zero city and what role regenerative design can play in doing that. Our studio is on Wadjuk country, and I acknowledge the Noongar elders, past, present and emerging. In March 2023, as part of the Perth Design Week, we hosted a conversation in our Perth studio, and today we're sharing an edited version of that event with you. As you'll hear, the conversation was robust. We spoke about what benefits could come from being a net zero city, going beyond low carbon emissions, and how designers, policymakers, and other industry colleagues can play important and collaborative roles in getting us there. Ideas were shared on how to challenge project briefs through engagement and applying a more holistic view to a project. We heard how homes are the low-hanging fruit, an opportunity for public-private partnerships, and that construction codes in Australia are not enabling industry to design or deliver high-performing buildings. Our MC, an old friend of mine, Professor Josh Byrne, kicked the conversation off. Josh, who Australian listeners may know from the ABC's long-running TV show Gardening Australia, is also the inaugural Dean of Sustainable Futures at Curtin University. Enjoy the episode. So let's uh, meet our group to get underway. Firstly, uh, Dr. Brad Pettit, MLC. So Brad, uh, as we uh, all know, is a a (laughs) self-professed sustainability nerd. Uh, He's well known to all of us as the much-loved former Mayor of Fremantle. Uh, And prior to his role as Mayor of City of Fremantle, he was the Dean of the School of Sustainability at Murdoch, taking over from Professor Peter Newman, of course, is now now at Curtin. Uh, In 2021, Brad was elected to the Legislative Council of the WA Parliament. Brad champions a ground-up approach uh, to sustainability and is leading the Net Zero Perth Initiative with a range of stakeholders from industry, government, academia and civil society. And we'll hear more about that this afternoon, I'm sure. Next, we have Carla Fox-Reynolds, of course, who is now uh, with Hassel as their sustainable design leader in the Perth studio and part of the practice's global sustainability team. Uh, Carla participates in national industry working groups such as the GBCA's Sustainable Precinct uh, Expert Reference Panel and previously had held roles uh, at both Curtin University, where I worked with Carla, uh, and also Climate Kick Australia. Then we have Ben Rees, who is a senior associate uh, architect here at Hassel. He was a project team leader on the WA Museum and is now project lead for Murdoch Square. Uh, Ben is interested in how we better define high-performance buildings and how we can apply systems thinking to optimise the design, delivery and operation of our buildings so um, so their resource and energy efficiency is optimised. And then finally, we have Zanna Anderson, who is an interior designer here at Hassel. Zanna moved uh, back to Australia one year ago after spending four years in Dubai and is currently working on the interior design for Home Fires Film Studio. She's interested in the micro scale of sustainability and regenerative design uh, and the impact of carefully considered materials and spaces. Right, with that, let's get underway. So look, let's start um, with Brad. Uh, And can you just give us your pitch for 
Net Zero Perth uh, as an initiative. You know, what are you trying to achieve and how do you see it becoming a reality? Yeah. Um, thanks, Josh. And getting carbon emissions down to zero is really important. So energy is a key part of it, but it's also about built form and how we change the nature of our city. Obviously, you, know, you could have a net zero city that continued to sprawl and just relied on relied on electric cars and you know and and, and, and renewable energy, but that's not a very livable city. So it's all also about livability and rethinking the urban form. Of course that links into transport, which becomes a really another key key part of it. Um, around how we move around um, and, and what's the best way to link that in. And then finally, urban greening, which is, of course has become a really key part of that because if we're going to have a livable, low-carbon city and it's one that's going to be a green city as well. Some of the fine-grained stuff, and which I know many of you have been involved in here, around that neighbourhood scale, how we redesign the, the, the city block, our neighbourhood blocks as well, ultimately down to the household scale, how we redesign redefine our homes to make them part of the solution. So it's got almost these 12 chapters because you've got the, the four bits of, of energy, transport, building, built form and greening at, at those three different decades. Um, we hear a lot about uh, um, net zero by 2050, um, good, but, um, but not actually matching up with what the science says we need to do. So how can we speed that up? But do that in a way that inspires. I mean, I, I think there's often a sense of it feels like a bit of a hair shirt approach sometimes, the idea that the transition, I think it can be actually just better and actually so inspiring how this, this idea of a low carbon, livable, net zero city can be a better city. I guess is what we're hoping it will be, and um, and that idea is we'll try and have some drafts that that, that out around the middle of this year, um, and then we want to go actually go back to community and say what's missing, and actually have it as a very collaborative project as we go forward as well. Um, a quick follow up question, if I can, just to help everyone understand how this might fit into other work that's happening in the policy and legislation space at the moment in in WA, of course, with the state government's proposed climate change legislation. Mm. Um, how is the roundtable that you're chairing and the fantastic industry and, and academic engagement that you do have in place through that, how is that aligning with the, the sort of the, the sectorial yeah. consultation work that, that's happening and the proposed targets that are, that are mooted for towards the end of the year? That reminds me of my favourite numbers, which I always like to talk about when I think about net zero, about cities and, 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 and carbon. So 2% of land mass, about, I think about around about now 52% of people and about 72% of emissions um, are associated with cities. So if you get cities right, we actually solve a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and the government's working really hard this year, and there's some really good work happening around what, what are called sexual emissions reduction strategies, SERS, um, and, um, which, which is a, a process that they hope to go public on in the second half of this year. Um, and what we're trying to, in many ways, is work alongside that, but inspire that to go further and harder and, 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 and better. Um, and which is actually why it's really nice you've got Minister Whitby and his staff kind of involved in the roundtable. Um, nice, because some of that work will happen there. Um, the government's committed to legislating net zero by 2050 um, and to actually come up with a series of interim targets. And what, we hope, what I hope we can do is inform what those interim targets could be and make them as ambitious as possible. There's a whole bunch of low-hanging fruit out there in this space that I think is really exciting that, that I think we can do. Thank you. Carl, I might throw uh, to you uh, next. Um, we know that at the moment the term net zero, uh, it's everywhere. Uh, and it's one of those things like, like the cloud was um, you know, 15 years ago. It's net zero. Everyone's kind of got that sorted, um, but no one quite knows uh, what it means. Uh, 
Um, what are you doing in your work and where are you seeing the conversation from leading design firms in relation to this notion of regenerative design to go beyond net zero? Thanks, Josh. So Hassel has made a commitment to what they're calling the sustainability framework. Um, and in doing that, they've employed a global sustainability team. That started last year with the employment of Sam Perth, who's the global head of sustainability. And that's not just focused in one area, that's across all offices. The mentality is that sustainability becomes our base load, that becomes our minimum. And we're working towards that regenerative design space. So we're no longer working in this sort of green or degenerative area. We're working from sustainable to regenerative design. We're not saying at this point that we know exactly what regenerative design looks like. Um, it's going to have a whole host of different complexities. There are going to be a lot of different solutions dependent on the site, project, client, um, portfolio, location, and so on. Um, but what we're saying is that we're a part of the solution. And we want to, we recognize our role in, and, and our responsibility. This is a team sport. We all, we all are going to play a role and we're, we're sort of jumping on board. Um, in doing that, we've recognized 12 principles. I don't know whether that's <laughs> 12 is a magic number. Um, and that is, like you just said, we're not just talking about carbon. We are talking about the site. We're talking about ecology. We're talking about materials. We're talking about the social aspect as well. So I think one of the big pieces that design brings to this is about recognizing that how we can create regenerative design can enable thrivability for people and nature and environment. What can we be doing to enable these places for us to all live and thrive together? So that's the vision that we're working towards. And for Hassel, that means all people, all projects. So as part of one of our tasks as, a, as the sustainability team and the reason why we're going to be spread across the, the business in, in all offices is so that we can be working with architects and designers that have already have their, their you know, fantastic skills, they're leading their field, but what can we do to bring them um, on the journey, enable sustainable mindsets, help them to recognize that actually they probably have most of the skills, they have the ideas, and what can we do to help them to recognize when the where the opportunities are, when to have the conversations, what are the questions that they need to be asking? Who are the clients that we want to be working with? Where do we align? How do we challenge the norm, go beyond business as usual? So, like I said, sustainability is our minimum, but then we're moving to regenerative design. And that means thinking outside of the typical project boundaries. Okay. Probably a good time to throw to a couple of project architects who are working on the detail. So we're going from the sort of the high-level concepts into into the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts here. So, Ben, I might, I might start um, with you. So, as, as an architect working on some of you know, Perth's biggest, most exciting projects, um, what is it that you're, you're not getting adequate guidance from at the moment? Um, so, with Hassel framing its new 12 Principles Sustainability Framework um, and moving towards this notion of regenerative design and trying to put some structure and some metrics and some evidence-based, um, you know, sort of parameters around that. I I'm intrigued um, to hear from your perspective working on the detail. Um, what do you feel you're lacking at the moment, given that there is some, some excellent guidance um, um, at, a, 
at a sort of design guidance perspective coming out of the Design WA series, for example. There are some well-established sustainability frameworks uh, at the moment, GBCA, uh, Living Building Challenge, others, if, if we can stretch that far. So I guess my question is, what, what are the missing mechanisms that, that are not enabling you to, to take the projects where you think they need to go? I think the, the, the main question is, how do we measure performance in the projects we do? And there's all sorts of qualitative and quantitative metrics around what success looks like. And in all of our projects, you know, we have to apply sort of multiple different lenses and different angles as to analyzing how a project can be sustainable, regenerative, and all the rest of it. So it's kind of like you have to take a holistic view of everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> and you have to think about sort of scales from macro to micro and time, short time to long time. And um, every project is sort of different depending on the brief, the budget, the building typology. And, you know, on a project like the museum, it's actually quite easy to achieve a lot of success because everyone's behind it. It's kind of a one-off for Perth. You know, it's a really, really important building. And so... It achieved a lot of things in terms of adaptive reuse, regenerating the cultural precinct and, you know, a, a high performing building. But for me, and I think a lot of us, there's an enormous frustration in terms of the codes and the regulatory framework about how we build buildings and how to achieve a high performing building. Because um, to be frank, we're about 20 years behind Europe in terms of what a high-performance building is and looks like in terms of, say, the fabric of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sort of referring to thermal and energy performance, air tightness, you know, that sort of thing. We have these sort of leaky sieves where every two minutes all of the air in the building either has to be heated or cooled because it's all leaking out, you know, at sort of um, 15 to 20 air changes an hour. NCC 22 is, is a minor improvement, but it's not going that far, and we've kicked the can down the road till 2025 here in WA. The reality is we've got a lot of catching up to do. So those sort of standards are minimum standards for compliance. We need to get really aspirational. How do we achieve, you know, not just a car that's roadworthy, but, you know, a high performance, you know, that sort of thing. You wouldn't, if you designed a car to the minimum standards, you probably wouldn't want to buy it. You want to get something better than that, right? And it doesn't necessarily cost loads more money to do it, but it does require a change in thinking that takes a lot more consideration on building science and how buildings actually work more than what they look like. Um, and I guess, you know, it, it also requires a major education drive in terms of the community, the trades, and how those kind of buildings get built because it's, it's, you know, it's different. And so... But I think we, you know, we should be looking at things like passive house and, and those kind of technologies or building um, methods and seeing what, what we can learn from them, how we can apply them. You know, in Frankfurt, they've just opened a passive house hospital of 700 beds, you know, all designed to, and for anyone who doesn't know what passive house is, it's super insulated, triple glazed, heat recovery, ventilation. You know, it's, it's the sort of ultra high performance energy efficient building typology. And, and if, if it can be done in Europe, yes, you need an enormous amount of kind of um, regulatory impetus or a very visionary client. Um, but, but all the tools exist for us to do really high performance buildings. But, you know, 
we've got a real problem here. We need to build a lot more housing, a lot more social housing. And the fact is, if we build that to current standards, you're talking about in 25 years' time, it's supposedly net zero. But if we're building it to current standards, it's going to be substandard then, and it's going to need to be retrofitted. And, and who's going to pay for that retrofitting? You're, you're just essentially, you know, I think, risking creating a problem further down the track that, that is too expensive to solve. And I guess for us, the frustration is that we could, we could solve it now, but you know, the framework has to be there because the incentive isn't necessarily there to, to go beyond the code because you know, it's hard and it costs more. We'll come back to how we might de-risk policy change a little bit later on. I think from, from my perspective, that's one of the most exciting opportunities we have Absolutely. as a fraternity. Yeah. Uh, by by demonstrating leadership and, and providing um, the room and the space for regulators to actually fill. Zana, um, so much of the conversation around um, net zero aspirations is around operational energy. From, a, from an interior design um, perspective, when you're looking at, in terms of LCA, it's the regular refitting and refurbishment of of buildings and specifically interiors, which over the life of the building really do start to add up. I'm keen to hear any reflections that, that you've got in terms of trends you're seeing in this space and whether or not the kind of importance of net zero that we see uh, from a, um, I guess, a, a high-level policy setting and project aspiration level, is that filtering down to the detail that you're working on and, and, and is that conversation mature in this part mm-hmm. of the design? Well, it should be, right? It it should be filtering down. Um, And I think the more that you listen to the discourse just generally, um, you can kind of get an understanding that interiors is sort of, well, for us, our options are quite straightforward and they're there. It's the materials we choose, the furniture we choose, and the way that we choose to detail our designs. And so in in a sense, there's a much more... Um, forward trajectory, straight, narrow path to follow then trying to do something aspirationally kind of in an urban setting, which is much larger. I think it's it's interesting to look at Hassel's sustainability framework when it comes to interiors and there's sort of notions in there that should always be kept in the back of your head and they're things that um, coming from the Middle East, I definitely that didn't cross my path. Um, but, you know, it's coming down to, okay, board sizes of a material and making sure that we're not creating extra waste and purchasing extra product. But then it can be further than that, that if you have that time for research and the budget that allows you, you can start looking into materiality, which is much more conscious and and um, and much better in a longevity Situation. I might just throw to Carla, just picking up on, on the idea of retrofitting, and, and you mentioned earlier, I know we were sort of going from commercial buildings back to, to resi, but I'll just focus on the residential um, housing for a moment because I know that Carla in her previous um, life at uh, Climate Kick Australia um, was involved in an incredible piece of work um, with uh, several universities involved, Curtin being one, UTS being another, uh, called A Million Homes, and it was looking at... Um, uh, you know the the plans and processes and systems required to rapidly retrofit a million homes or more. So scaling up the types of retrofitting practices that we all know work and 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 um, return uh, very real benefits to households in terms of comfort and health and and, and savings. Uh, just to 
to give us your take on the opportunities of retrofit versus new build? We often get excited with new builds, but, but how about the retrofit? I get excited about retrofit. <laughs> um, and, and mostly for homes, but also when you look at the city landscape, and I would love to know the, the numbers of how many buildings just within the city that sit dormant and what we could, and then start to consider what we could actually do with that. What policy would open up those opportunities? Um, but then looking at residential and like Ben started to touch on it, if we are building new homes now that are going to need to be retrofitted in five, ten, well, in reality, they need to be retrofitted the day after somebody moves in, the way they're being built right now. Um, we already have, so there's 10 million homes within Australia, approximately 8 million of those need retrofitting. Um, Obviously, NCC 2022 is progress for Australia. It took us 10, 12 years to have some progress. Um, hopefully, so that there is already behind the scenes a lot of talk about what the next NCC looks like. Yay, we have a visitor. <laughs> <laughs> and there is talk about driving from the industry, driving that towards um, net zero for homes. Um, we already have examples of that internationally. Um, from a scaling perspective, the issue that we found is that it isn't about the solutions. We generally know what needs to be done for a home. We have the tools now. There's the National Residential Energy Efficiency Scorecard that can be done. costs a few hundred dollars. Somebody would walk through a home and go through the process and give you a star rating and then also tell you what needs, what they would recommend to be able to increase um, the efficiency of your home. Something that we also found, though, is that people found the actual process, and even those of us that are involved in the industry, thought of going through the process from that, I want to improve my home to the actual realisation of that, is a very difficult process. You might now have a, a star rating and, and something that tells you, but then who do you call? Do you know a trade local that is actually capable of doing that? If you were to find somebody, find a, a plumber and say, or an electrician and say, I'd like to remove all gas from my home, we'd like to electrify. We're thinking about putting in a heat pump. They'll most probably try and talk you into having gas instantaneous, for example. That's a tricky piece that we need to come over and, and, and it's a, a, a case of upskilling. Um, and there's a lot that can be done from a government perspective mm. to enable that. Um, what I loved about that piece of work, it's not just reiterating the stuff we already know in terms of how we go about making a conventional, you know, Aussie standalone detached house uh, net zero in operation and, and more comfortable. It's actually all about how do you build the supply chains and the business ecosystem in this country to actually make it a financially positive outcome as well. And I mean, homes in many ways actually are the low-hanging fruit in, in, in lots of ways. And I think we've all seen some of the work that saw Griffith and the whole rewiring Australia, pulling gas out of your buildings, electrifying heat pumps, insulation. It's not rocket science. It pays yourself really quickly. Um, and I think for me, there's a whole bunch of stuff in that space that just makes a huge amount of sense that we need to do quickly. Um, and, and actually, and I think, just makes sense. But you need, again, there's a whole bunch of stuff around building up industry and capacity to do that. Um, and, and enabling, especially, because there's a real challenge with these things, and it also applies to electric vehicles, even electric bikes, which we were talking about earlier, um, where you've got this upfront capital cost, but then they, they just pay for themselves so beautifully over time. Um, but how do you help people who aren't wealthy um, to be able to 
many ways get past that first hurdle and actually do that. I think that, and that's a really important role for government. Where government, and, we, um, and I often look at the a- a- ACT, we do lots of really good stuff in this space, actually offer low, or actually sometimes no interest loans to help people buy into it, actually, so they can do some of this low-hanging fruit. Um, and then all of a sudden, those households, and Saul Griffith's numbers are, I mean, that by the end of this decade, the average household will save $5,000 a year on energy bills if they electrify. And don't, and don't, don't, and by electrify means electrify your transport, your car, I mean, and, 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 and electrify your house. Um, that's huge savings. And if you can help especially lower income households do that, I think that's some of the best learning that we can do. Do the targets play a role here? So is that something that's being considered within the departments? Because now, obviously, I'm speaking from WA state government perspective, have a target. And everything, every asset, every building, every tenancy will have an impact on that target. Is that a way that it can be communicated about if, if we aren't going to be trying to reach this target, then another building or another tenancy is going to have to make up for that? Logic suggests that it, yeah. that it must do eventually, but has it, has it filtered down to that point yet of working that out. I think that, that's the process that's happening right now through SERS, <laughs> yeah. I think, is, yeah. is how yeah. and who takes that weight in terms of actually meeting those targets. So this presents a really interesting opportunity and I think we're all wanting to take something away from this afternoon about how we look to operationalise or implement initiatives in various shapes and forms to, to nudge things along. And if with the, the rollout of, of SERS and if there are um, the sectoral reviews that are happening, which would include um, you know, the delivery of public buildings and assets. For those who work in the design fraternity in that part um, of the industry, there's an opportunity. Um, for, you know, particularly the big firms that are designing that have significant reputations and are trusted for their advice. Um, if they're speaking up and saying, right, here's the opportunity to go beyond what you normally do, consider adjusting the brief so that you can meet those returns of carbon emission savings as you're required to do under the state government uh, targets. That's an intervention point that is live now between now and the end of the year. That's my, my fear sometimes with the net zero language though, is, and I think this is actually a real danger for how this plays out, mm-hmm. is that we're going to try and have a net zero version of what we do already. And, and my fear yeah. is that literally you just swap out every every internal combustion car with a with, with, with an electric car, and we just make put have every house with a solar panel on it. We think that's okay. I guess that's what I was trying to say is let's don't let's, don't make that our solution to a to a carbon problem. Something I'd like to add in is the idea of a whole of life carbon um, measurement being done as part of the planning process. Mm-hmm. So in, in some part, it's a, how do we change the measures of success. And how do we change our priorities? And so if we're talking languages that go beyond, so if we're thinking from an economic perspective, it goes beyond just the dollar, where we're talking about, we start talking about carbon, we start talking about comfort, we start talking about health, society. And and all of those are amalgamated as the same conversation and we measure them in whatever manner we best can. And and obviously environment in there as well, but that's a tricky one, really tricky one. it starts to change what a building or a precinct or a city would look like because our, our measure of success is different. So I think that's something I'd really like to see mm. and, and that needs to happen in, in planning and, and in process, but it also needs to happen that, that shift of mindset. Uh, Mark Taylor from Hesperia. Um, 
Great conversation. Thanks, everybody. So I was just going to talk about our net zero a little bit, and it goes a little bit to what Brad was saying as well. We're actually net zero now, so our current projects are set up to be we measure, reduce, and offset. And I actually think that's a bit of a minimum. We're trying to get away from particularly the offsetting, and by 2030, we want to be doing very little offsetting and still be net zero. And by 2040, we think that's as late as we can possibly leave having actual zero carbon projects. Also around the focusing on carbon, I think is obviously important. It is, we do need to understand carbon and what makes a difference. But the thing I notice again and again is that when we do try and engage with these difficult problems, we end up getting much better buildings. You know, if you think, I don't want to use concrete, I'm going to use timber on this one, um, replace the steel in our sheds or something. It's just a much nicer building and all kinds of amazing kind of co-benefits seem to emerge. And I think that goes for landscape a little bit as well as we try and repair uh, do some of this nature, regeneration and so on. We're just ending up with better landscapes and better spaces. Um, there's also energy. As we move to renewable energy, there's different ways we can think now where rather than just wanting to be more and more efficient all the time, we can say, well, what is actually a really good use of energy? You know, what, what should we be using it for? And where do we need to be efficient? Where can we actually use a bit more? Because we use it at the right time of day or from the right sources, recirculating air in buildings like... Maybe we can just stop doing that because we can you know, do the heating and cooling with renewable energy and it's a much, much healthier result. I'm just saying there's a whole lot of sort of potential uh, co-benefits on this journey that I think that's, like for a lot of people here, that's actually our job. Mm. We're already wanting to go there. We kind of get what we have to do. But to make it more compelling, I think there is, I think there just is a good story there. Um, it goes along with the hard work and well said. To wrap up uh, to, to Brad um, uh, and Carla. So as I mentioned earlier, I think we all want to sort of leave this conversation um, this afternoon, um, you know, with, with a sense of, of how as a, as a fraternity in this design space, we can um, all contribute to positive change. I think we're all doing that in our own ways with the work we do. Um, but maybe, um, Brad, if I can start with you first... Um, what are some of the, the, I guess, the two or three key ways that design practitioners at this point in time in Perth uh, can go beyond just collaboration but actually contribute to fast-tracking um, the, the transition towards seeing really good design and net zero, beyond zero outcomes and um, the broader... Um, sustainability outcomes in the built environment. How do we get to that point beyond collaboration? Yeah, um, there's a, a few ways, and, and collaboration is going to be, I think, is, is remains key. But also talking up the successes and how do we, and, and, and they're happening. I just don't think people know about them. Actually, so you anyway, know, sharing the things that are that are going beyond business as usual that are. Um, getting us to where we want to go, you know, being to net zero and nature positive and all this. I mean, and I guess this is partly what I'm hoping to do with the net zero project, is actually start to, in many ways, define a new, better normal. I mean, that we all feel like we can get excited about. Because I think that's, in many ways, going to be part of it. Then it's going to be around push. I mean, I, I really do think government has a really big role to play here. And government cares a huge amount about what industry thinks. Um, and 
I, I think there needs to be a really clear voice to come around what, I mean, many, many ways, it's not fair to industry that the worst performance gets to succeed because the regulations don't, don't actually um, support the best performance. So we actually need industries to actually ask and demand that government sets regulation that gets us where we need to go and actually rewards the people in this room who are doing good stuff. Um, it actually reward, rewards those, those, those kinds of projects. I think if we do those things, um, I, I, like, you know, I keep coming back to this fact that we have the technology, we, we, we know what to do, um, and we're, we're, now it's just a way of how do we ramp that up and, and inspire and actually collaborate, but also actually start to join up some of, some of, some of those things for, for what hopefully, and in fact, must be a decade that is totally different, where we actually start to totally reimagine how we do the built environment, how we design our cities. Because that, 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 as, I, as I said at the start, that's where some of the key change is. And some of the change that we can do right now, it's exciting. But it's going to be, it's going to require a huge push from everybody kind of asking for something that is different. Thank you. Carla? This is an opportunity for public-private partnership. So that we go beyond collaboration, we can partner, we can all bring something different to the table. Um, I'm going to throw it out there and say that architects can make the ordinary extraordinary. <laughs> but it's about adding a bit of fun to this. Like It's, it, it's hard work. It's complex. It, it, there's, there are a lot of many, as Mark said, boring steps that need to be in process. However, there's so much fun to be had in that process, and we need to envisage what we want the future that we want to be a part of. What does that look like? And I know a lot of people, they refer back to their meaning being about their children, and, and that is, for some people, their driver. But this isn't just for our children. It's going to impact us this decade. So it's about what is your... What, what do you envisage the world to look like? What do you envisage your neighbourhood, your community? What do you envisage, envisage being, you know, the base minimum being? Because there, there will be some people where, because they have so much money, they'll continue to live in the manner that they will and they will be able to adapt. But there will be many people that won't be able to adapt. And if we're not being able to lift them up as a part of the community, we are failing still. So it's about everybody getting there together being creative, being, you know, being brave, being human, <laughs> which I think we all learned from the pandemic. That was a bit of a, we were able to be a little bit more vulnerable with each other. So let's run with that and um, achieve the vision. I think that's it. Well, thank you uh, to, to both of you for being part of this conversation um, right the way through. Um, a, a big thank you to uh, those of you who were comfortable to come forward and take a seat and, and make some comments. Um, a big thanks, of course, to all of you for coming along. Uh, I believe uh, this event booked out within a matter of hours, uh, which is you know really testimony to the concept. So well done. Uh, to Hassel um, for for hosting us and putting this forward, I'm sure it's you know going to be one of the highlights of of Perth uh, Design Week. Um, I guess the last comment uh, that I'll make uh, before closing is just picking up on that uh, point that um, that Brad uh, made uh, in his closing words, which is around um, we have a unique opportunity, I think, right now, um, and certainly between now and the end of the year when. Um, the the service process concludes as the state government um, you know continue to uh, work through their consultation process for 
um, setting these targets that will be legislated on how we um, uh, make our way to, to net zero and beyond uh, for the thought leaders, of which many are in this room, uh, can contribute to raising the bar and the standard of conversation that is happening uh, with industry and the wider community. Uh, and it's a process of normalising is, is the behavioural science term in this aspect, is that um, we're, we're moving away from the idea of um, having exemplars. They are important, they raise awareness, they excite people, um, clients you know, love exemplars. Uh, but uh, we need to normalise this and, and have it um, as part of a, a conversation that people get. We have to move beyond language of just net zero uh, because it is rapidly becoming a buzz term that no one quite understands, but it's okay, net zero sorted, so we, we've got a positive future. Uh, we have um, multiple challenges in front of us, obviously the biodiversity challenge, the toxicity and persistent materials and chemicals challenge, and, and of course climate change, which is arguably the most urgent at the moment. Uh, and so to, uh, to really address all of those, um, uh, design is about doing things better. Uh, and I think as was pointed out on a couple of occasions, uh, designers uh, need to do more than just focus on their own projects. Uh, they need to work together and I think collectively we have a huge role to play. It was really encouraging to see and hear about the connections being made between setting targets, measuring impact, and the responsibility to deliver aspirations at project level. We know that the process isn't easy and in some places quite complex and challenging, but there are obvious opportunities for us all to work together in an environment that allows for creative and brave partnerships, where we can challenge our priorities and our measures for success. We all want to be part of the solution that empowers us to live and thrive with country and its creatures. In the time since the event, the Perth office has been energised by the conversations that have continued. Hassel's sustainability framework gives permission to our designers to think systemically and to explore with clients and partners what it means to design regeneratively. It also helps them to see the role they play in creating and realising the vision of a net zero Perth. There are so many good stories to come. Thanks again to our MC Josh Byrne, to everyone who contributed to the conversation and the many people working behind the scenes to create this event. And thank you to you, our listeners. We know you're as passionate about the role design plays in creating a beautiful, resilient and inclusive future as we are. I'm Carla Fox Reynolds. You've been listening to an episode of Hassle Talks. Follow, rate and review us. We love to hear your feedback and your reviews help other people find our podcast. This episode was produced by Xiao Chai and Prue Vincent. <laughs>